All right. You guys good, by the way? Okay, I'm just, I'm sensing something. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Someone said, it's math. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Blaise Pascal says that to that very point, Blaise Pascal, great, you know, mathematician, philosopher, he says this, to speak freely of mathematics, I find it the highest exercise of the spirit, but at the same time, I know what it is, so useless, he says. And I think that kind of names the two different types of us in the room. Some of us go, oh, math is so awesome. It's like the highest use of our spirit. And others are like, it's completely useless. I don't even know why I exist. Now, how many of you are of the first kind? That's your elk. You're like, I love math. Math is awesome. All right? Good. How many of you are like, so useless. I, like, I, I want to give myself to things that really matter. Right? Okay. So Pascal says in a different place, he actually talks about us two types. And, and here's what he says. He says this. There are two types of minds, the mathematical and what might be called the intuitive. The former arrives at its views slowly, but they are firm and rigid. The latter is endowed with, and this gets clunky, the greater flexibility and applies itself simultaneously to the diverse, lovable parts of that which it loves. In other words, there are math folk and there are love folk. And some say the two never go together. But we say, no, 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 no. It's super really important because, see, a math folk and a love folk get married, you see? And you gotta figure it out. Or you become roommates, or you become co-workers, it's, or, or you're siblings or whatever. And actually, there's something about bringing together what we call funky little math formulas that will make you math people really mad, by the way, because it's not really, really math. I, I was... Um I was talking to my daughter uh, yesterday, and she said, Dad, because I was going over like some of these uh, equations, she goes, Dad, don't show these to little kids because they'll be really, really confused, is what she said, <laughs> right? Because we did a series about two years ago called Love Math, where we said, let's look at the most meaningful things to you and me, which is relationship. Let's dig into the scriptures and go for the deep heart of God, and let's bring some funky, not good, but love math formulas and equations together. And, um, and by review, if you were around two years ago, how many of you uh, remember love math? Just curious. All right. So uh, we talked about, this is again just review, that when a husband marries a wife, that, that one plus one equals what? Not two, but what? One, that's right, because the beautiful, mysterious union of becoming one flesh emotionally, physically, uh, intellectually, spiritually. But if you're single and you're not married, one plus zero equals what? Also one, which is so beautiful, right? Because you're made in the image of God. Jesus wasn't married, and yet he was the most complete and whole human being to, to ever exist. And notice this. This one is the same as that one. There's no difference. Why is it then that mom and dad or your friends or culture or media or even the church say, unless you have somebody, you're one half, hmm? Right? And if you lose sight of your very core identity of who you are, bear, made in the image of God, right? Your core identity is I'm loved, I'm a, I'm a child of God, no matter whether I'm married or single or not. But if this is your, your perceived existence or your identity, and then you start to date, and you date as a one half, and you end up dating another one half, because oftentimes they attract, what's the math on that? It's not one. It's never one. Right? We know this in our dating relationships, right? Past, present, 
maybe even future we hope not. It basically is some sort of destructive bad thing. And this is where country music comes from, right here. (laughs) Right here, right? So whatever your relationship, whatever, you know, we've all experienced things, haven't we? And, And really, at times, we've all been in conflict where my one and your one, see how the backs are apart from one another? equals some big old question mark in the relationship, and some of us might be in a question mark right now. And that goes straight back to the garden when sin first entered the world, and there's shame, and there's blame, and there's hiding, and there's fear, and there's all these kinds of things, right? Well, we're going to look at this in a different view. We're not going to review really any of these formulas. We're going to take on some new ones as we jump back into the New Testament letter called Ephesians. For over a year, we have been plowing through this book in the New Testament called Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul. And we come to this place where after Paul doing this beautiful identity work, this beautiful, here's who the the people of Jesus really are, and here's who our God is, now he really gets specific and says, now, in a household, here's how all of this applies across a myriad of different relationships. And your household might look different than someone else's household. That's totally cool. We can all find ourselves in it. But let's just look at uh, the kind of ground we're going to be covering here in Love Math 2.0 from Ephesians 5:18 through chapter 6, verse 9. Next week, we're going to just talk about what does it look like to love one another? Um, and then we're going to move on to kids. On Mother's Day, we're going to talk about kids and parenting. And then on May the 19th, we're going to say, husbands, what should this look like? What's your formula? And then wives. And by the way, this will all apply. We'll all find ourselves in it. And then the following week, we're going to talk about coworkers. How many of us have co-working issues? Right? And then June the 9th, we're actually going to talk about slaves because it's addressed in the Bible. And so we're going to unpack that might feel a little bit outside, but uh, it's really important that we look at that. And then we're going to talk about dads on Father's Day. We're going to talk about worship the week following, and then we have our summer baptism out at the lake. So there's the 10-week run. Are you in? Are you game for a little love math for our spring into summer? Yeah, you good? Right? Beautiful. Let's pray together. So Father, we just say this time is yours. We want to ask for your Holy Spirit to come and bring your presence, your peace, your openness, God, that you might give us an available heart and mind to what you want to do among us here. God, as we think about relationships, we just know they matter so much and they can hurt so much. So some of us need a sense of your repair. Some of us need um, a new vision for the relationships that we're in. Some of us need to be challenged in these ways. And so, Lord, we just say this time is yours, this series is yours. Would you illuminate from your word, your scriptures for us over all things that would elicit and express your deep heart? And we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So for about 100 years, we, we being smart people, have known about our survival instincts. 
which are, they can be described as fight, which is that kind of survival of the fittest. It's about conquest. Flight, which is about making haste and getting out of dodge. Freezing, which is just paralyzing in fear. Or feigning, which is when you, you, you act dead in order to survive, like an opossum. Right, And so those are basically the four from our sympathetic nervous system and our parathetic uh, nervous system, uh, parasympathetic nervous system. Those are the ways that we respond in fear in order to survive. And for about 100 years, we, we all thought that that was our deepest core, most primal piece to you and me as human beings. And we all experience these kind of these four things differently. We all get kind of triggered in different ways. Take, for example, choking. So when one of our daughter chokes around the dinner table, my wife Elise goes into fight mode. She like will pick up our 12-year-old by the ankles, right? And she'll just hold her upside down and she'll just start praying, dear Jesus, dear Jesus, just like slapping her on the back, breaking every Heimlich rule on the planet, right? And, and you know, it's like an exorcism, bam, bam, you know? And I'm sitting there like, frozen. I am frozen. Why am I frozen? Because I have just transported back to circa 1982 in a Volkswagen Vanagon Weeblo Cub Scout outing along the 405 freeway in Southern California when a hard candy got dislodged in my throat. And I was in the back of this van again, and we're all roughhousing because no one wore seatbelts back in that day, right? And I'm, I'm in that place, and all of a sudden, this candy that a friend, Jeff Surrey, drops into my mouth, and as I'm laughing, joking, giggling, it just gets lodged, and I sit straight up, and I start going crazy. I start banging the walls and everything. Well, they just think I'm being hyperactive. And so they start saying, Danny, don't make me pull the car over. I'm like, you're not even my dad, but I can't even talk. You know, I am forgetting this whole thing. So that's what happens to me in a, in a fearful moment relating to choking. My wife kicks into action and I'm over in the corner sucking my thumb in the fetal position. <laughs> we all respond differently to different stimuli. Ah. I just kicked my water. Did you see how I just, what was that reaction? <laughs> We're all so scripted here. We all respond differently to different stimuli. And we all thought that this was our core, most primal way of um, our human nature until a neuroscientist named Dr. Stephen Porges in 1994, made a startling discovery. He said, there's a deeper thing than our survival instincts. There's a deeper thing. It's a part of our parasympathetic nervous system. He calls it the polyvagal theory, and it basically means this, that before we even come out of the womb, all lathered up in goop and the, and the whole thing, our core deepest instinct is for connection. It's not to fight. It's not to run. It, it's not to, to freeze. It's not to feign dead. It's actually, what I'll just use, just my language, it's we're seeking a friend. We're seeking connection. We're seeking relationship. I mean, this is a landmark kind of discovery here. This is going, no, the very thing in you and, and in me 
the core thing, you know, in our anthropology is that we hunger at the very core of our being for relationship. And it's only when we do not have that sense of attachment, that sense of connection, that we move on to our survival instincts. It's only when we, we don't have that security of attachment that then we fight, then we flee, then we freeze, then we feign. Does this not make sense to, to you and me and to all of our relationships? Does it not make sense why relationships matter so very much and yet they're so maddening at the same time? Like the people that we have vowed our lives to or the people that we just know we love so much, we can just be filled with all sorts of anger and vitriol and everything else. Like what, what is, why is it that when it comes to relationship, we're just like this, please, please love me, know me. I just want to be safe and secure, but please don't get too close. Don't get too close. Right? And it makes sense of the research too. In 2014 from the University of Chicago, they found this, that those who have meaningful relationships will live on average 15 years longer than those who don't. And then they look at all these kinds of things, whether it's dementia or heart stroke or all these things, and and just across the board, they go, meaningful relationships matter to our physical health to the point where Actually, if we suffer from what's called chronic isolation or loneliness, it's on par, and maybe you've heard this, with smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It has that kind of harm. And now you have Dr. Stephen Porges like stepping back and just saying, look, 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 the data's pointing at here, but the neuroscience and everything is actually saying that we were made at our core for relationship. Not to fight, not to flee, not to freeze, not to faint, but at our core. And so you got Dr. Stephen Borges, you got all this data coming out from here and from there, but it all points back to a beautiful anthropology of God in the very first chapter of Genesis where he declares about you and me, it is not good for man or humanity to be alone. It is not good. It's not good. And if we had an equation for that, which we do, or a formula, and by the way, as a creative team, we were brainstorming, okay, for 2.0, we need to go big this time. And so I, I like threw out the idea, could we have like a whiteboard from the ceiling that comes down on hydraulics and it like covers the whole stage and we can leave the formulas up all day long. And the, and the team went away and they thought about it and they said, Dan, we got a better idea. We're going to make you Vanna White. We'll call you Dana White. And they've created some, some cubes here of formulas, and the formula for it is not good for man to be alone, which of course includes man and woman, and it includes uh, not just about, and that means you need to, you know, have a, a romantic partner. It does not mean that. It means we hunger for relationship, that one plus zero is not equal to, it is less than Squirrel. Okay, just kidding. It is less than one. It is less than one. Now, this is not the relationship for being single. Please hear that. We saw it earlier. What is it? One plus zero equals one. What we're talking about here is your and my need. What Dr. Stephen Porges is is pointing to, what all the data is pointing to, it is not good for you and for me to be alone. But... 
there is even a deeper, there's a deeper reason why this is true. Like God's just looking at, at us and all of this beautiful things that he has designed and created and said it's so good and it's very good, but there's one not good is, is that humanity should never be alone. Why would he say that? Just for our own benefit? Or could it also be for his too? Could it be for his too? That actually there might be something about our maker that speaks into this anthropology for you and me as well. And we see a hint of this when God talks about the kind of climax of his creating uh, power and extravagance when he makes you and me. And he says this, look at this with me. Then God said, let us make man, and we'll see that he's talking about male and female here in a second. Let us make man in our image. This is very interesting. Look at this. According to our likeness. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And not to be confused, male and female, he created them. Now, what's so fascinating about this is you have to understand at the time of this writing, the Jewish culture was monotheistic, which they just said, one God, one God. We believe in the, the God who appeared to, to Moses at the burning bush. And when asked who he was, he just said, I am who I am who I am, who I am. He is the, the living one God. And yet from the very get-go, we see him using plural language. Now some have different maybe theories about why is God doing that. It's called like the royal we, you know, when a king describes himself in third person plural and all those kinds of things. But we begin to even look more and more from Old Testament to New to see that there is a depth an essence to God about who he is in his core that's mysterious, fascinating, and very telling for you and me in our relationships. And it actually happens in the first verse of the first chapter of the first book in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, 1 says this about things and God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that word for God in the Hebrew is Elohim. And Elohim is plural. It's plural. And then it goes on to use singular verb and, verb and action. It's like very interesting. We're going, wait a minute. The, the God who is one, this rally cry within the Jewish culture with surrounding culture, which was very polytheistic, which means multiple gods, right? You know, they believed in Zeus and Aphrodite and all these things. I mean, they basically believed in the Avengers Endgame is, is pretty much what everyone believed. But here's this Jewish culture coming and saying, no, look, look, look. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, 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 one. But look, the word that it gets used again is Elohim, this plural word for God. What is going on here? And as one theologian would say, what began is like this breadcrumb trail in the Old Testament, you know, through the Psalms and you see some of it in the prophets, becomes this super highway in the New Testament. Maybe as best expressed when Jesus gets baptized, that the Son of God, Jesus, goes down in the water and he hears this voice from heaven that says, you are my Son, whom I love, in you I am well pleased. And it says the sky kind of opens up and then the Spirit of God descends like a dove. And you see the Son in the water, the voice of the Father booming his love over the Son and the Spirit descending. And then when Jesus calls us at the very end of his earthly ministry, three and a half years later, look at how he 
commissions us as a, as a church. It says this, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, look at that, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He, he actually, if, if there wasn't something really beautiful, mysterious, and compelling going on, he should have said, in the names of the three persons, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But instead, he, he, used, he keeps it singular, but then shows Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He, he, if he were doing this, you know, with the Avengers, he said, in the names of Iron Man and who else? Thor, and you're right, in the names of, like, right? But now we're just seeing all of these interesting things. And as the revelation of who God is continued to progress, the New Testament writers, the followers of Jesus, began to see this repeated and write about it. So Paul, or excuse me, Peter, writes about it in his letter in the New Testament. He says this, God the Father knew you, chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We see it in Ephesians, this book that we've been jumping in and out of. There is one body and one spirit. We're the body, by the way, is the church. Just as you were called to one hope, when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. What we're beginning to see here is what this dude named Tertullian back in like the second or third century finally coined a phrase for. It's not in the Bible, but the, but the word is Trinity. Trinity. That God is one, and God is three persons. Each person is fully God. And God is one. Make sense? It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's mind-blowing stuff. Again, to the Jewish Hebraic mindset, this is heresy. To the Muslim orientation, this is ridiculous. To our founding father, Thomas Jefferson, this is incomprehensible jargon to try to make, make sense of it. Is it incomprehensible? No, uh, because we can see these things in the scripture. Is it jargon? Absolutely not, because it means something really, really important. Now, let me offer you some pictures. Some pictures uh, that, that might help, maybe. So, let's look here. That God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. But Father is not Son, Son is not Holy Spirit, and Holy Spirit is not Father. Any better? <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, this is on par with multiverse stuff, right? String theory, black holes. Like, how do you get your mind around that? But here's, here's what, like, why we're taking time with this. Remember, we talked about you and I. We were made for relationship. You and I, at our very core essence, made in the image of God. It's not good for you and I to be alone. Why does this matter? Because as Tertullian kind of said it, he said, God is one, but God is not alone. God is one, but God is not alone. In other words, within his very being is relationship between Father and Son, and Holy Spirit. And that leads to really the foundational. This is why for some of us we're reviewing here today. This is the foundational formula that guides every single other formula to follow. 
that one plus one plus one equals not three, not squirrel, but one. Father plus son plus Holy Spirit equals this beautiful, mysterious, rich, overflowing relationship within the one triune God. And if we come back to the pictures, we'll see, um, maybe we'll flesh out what is this relationship like? That the Father knows the Son. You see a lot of this in uh, John's Gospel, uh, chapters 14 through 17, so rich, this intimate kind of relationship. The Son knows the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows the Father. You see that the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Holy Spirit, and you see the Holy Spirit loves the Father. There's this mutuality that's just so amazing. And then to tee up next week, that the Father serves, submits to the Son, the Son submits to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit submits to the Father, that there's this interdependency. There's this beautiful relationship that overflows from the very heart of God in the heavenly realm and comes into you and to me. That you were made in the image of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You were made with the very not divine essence, but made with the heart of God. Part of bearing his image is bearing this hunger for relationship, for relationship. And this actually is how God designed all creation. It's really fascinating. I want to read to you from Richard Rohr, kind of a contemplative monk who reflects on how this works in creation. Look at this with me. It's, it's, it's heady. The energy in the universe is not in the planets or in the protons or neutrons, but in the relationship between them. Not in the particles, but in the space between them. Not in the cells of organisms, but in the way the cells feed and give feedback to one another. Think also gravity, how gravity is pulling all this kind of matter together not in any precise definition of the three persons of the Trinity, as much as in the relationship between the three. This is where all the power for infinite renewal is at work. Daryl Johnson summarizes it, I think, really well in his book, Experiencing the Trinity. The living God is not a solitary God. The living God is not an isolated God. From all eternity, the living God has lived in relationship, indeed, has lived as relationship. At the center, we could say, of existence, because we've been made in the image of God, and it's God who created all things. At the center of all existence and reality is relationship. And so now we say, is that any more clear? While we're talking about it this morning? Is it still kind of confusing to you? I love how my friend... Dr. Dominic Scalise would summarize, he'd say, God's relationship with himself is confusing. Welcome to relationships. <laughs> and yet it's so important. Piece this all together with me for a moment. Piece the whole story together. The discovery by Dr. Stephen Porges. He says, wait a minute, our very core instinct is not to fight, it's to love. 
Look at the data and the research, meaning, uh, so physiologically, my body responds differently when I receive and experience that which I was made for and that which I can give away to others. Think about the relationships that, that you and I have and all the ones that we're going to be look, looking at over the next nine, ten weeks that we have in the very heart of God, a roadmap for thriving relationships as we learn and experience and as the relationship within Father, Son, Holy Spirit overflows, cascades down to you and to me. We see now why God said it's not good for, for man and woman to be alone. Why? Well, because we bear his image. You can't bear his image and be alone. We see why Christmas makes new sense. The incarnation. God could have like sent a data upload to fix things. But what did he do instead? Being the relational one that he is. He came. He came in the flesh. That's how much he, relationships matter to him. When he returns, by the way, literally and physically, he will come again, literally, physically. And the scriptures say that he'll say, and now I'm dwelling with my people. God hungers for relationship within himself, and he hungers to have relationship with all that he created, and first and foremost, with you and with me. But these things aren't transactional that at the core of who God is, and, and if you want to call it this, of what religion is, but I, I don't really like that word because we think of rules and regulations and all those things, but at the core of all existence is a God who hungers to give the relationship that he is and has a way to you and to experience it with you. And that's what baptism is. So when my daughter and nine other middle school students go down in the waters. And when we pronounce them and say, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we lay them down in the waters, which reflect their, the, their old life, and we bring them up to identify with Jesus' resurrection, and say, now you're being raised to new life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those are not just words. That's just not rote speak. Do you know what that is? that we're being invited into the deepest relationship of all, to all that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When in a moment, the band's gonna come out right now and we're gonna take communion together. And as you come down, and by the way, you may not be ready, that's totally cool. You can just sit and join us. You can go to uh, the side crosses and write little prayers on sticky notes. You can. Do whatever you want. We're just so glad that you're with us. But for anyone that can say, I believe in your life, Jesus, in your death for my sins, in your resurrection, proclaiming power over sin, death, suffering, and in your promised return for all of us who come, I want you to think about it. This is not a transaction with God. This is his invitation to you for relationship, for deepening relationship, for thriving relationship, with him, but also with one another. And so my prayer for us today is that you would feel the call of God's relational heart bringing you to the breaking of the bread, the taking of the juice, which Nick, Nick will explain and lead us in. Let's pray together.
And so, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we just pause in this moment and ask by your, the giving of your Holy Spirit in this moment that you would speak to us, call us, woo us, invite us to take the cracker, to dip it into the juice, and to somehow be invited into this eternal reality of your deep heart for us. This is not a box to check. That though we have our ways of fighting and fleeing and freezing and feigning, that God, at your very deepest place, you want to restore us to friendship. With you, you want to restore us as forgiven ones in friendship with others. So speak to us now how we need to hear you at our deepest place. Give us courage to come to the table available in a new way to you, we pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.